Welcome to A World Where Living Works, stories of science and survival, bringing together our heads and our hearts to build a suicide-safer world. Talking openly about suicide is so important, but we also recognise that listening to this series may bring up some tough emotions. If so, please talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you are feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. You're listening to A World Where Living Works, and I'm your host, Kim Borodell. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of the beautiful lands wherever you're listening. I'd also like to acknowledge everyone out there who's been impacted by suicide, the pain it brings to our lives, but also the desire to make positive change for all of us to live well. Today, I'm talking with Professor Paul Yip from Hong Kong. Professor Yip is the Associate Dean of Research of the Faculty of Social Sciences at Hong Kong University the Chair Professor of Population Health at the Department of Social Work and Social Administration, and the Director of the HKJC Centre for Suicide Research and Prevention. Paul's current research interests involve population health issues, including poverty alleviation, adopting a public health approach in suicide prevention, restriction of means, cost effectiveness of suicide prevention, and program evaluation. A very warm welcome to you, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Yes, it's my pleasure to join. For our listeners around the world, Paul, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about suicide as a public health issue in Hong Kong and wider Asia, if you like, just so we can understand suicide and its prevention in a local context for you. Yes, I think based on the WHO latest suicide report, there's 800,000 people kill themselves every year, and then actually 70%, I think, occur, I think, in this part of the world, I think, in Asia or South Asia. And then uh, on the top of it, it is the leading cause of death among the young people. But unfortunately, I think the resources, I think, to do with the suicide prevention, which is much less, I think, than the Western country. Furthermore, I think it is also have more challenges in terms of not only the availability of the medical services, but it's also talking about the stigma, I think, arising about mental health and also the help-seeking behaviours. I think these are the major challenges. I think when we do the suicide prevention in Asia or even in Hong Kong. And why do you think there is a stigma around talking about mental health in Hong Kong? Well, I think it is... The awareness of the mental health, I think, uh, is not as important as the what's called the physical health. Since the mental health is always have this sort of the stigma in the way that it is the people have something wrong. I think what we have the experiences, if you try to raise some funding for the cancer patient, it is a piece of cake. No, it is not difficult to raise the millions of dollars. I mean, I mean, there are people, I mean, they open their heart, they open the wallet. I mean, they come to contribute to help these people have the cancer. But when you talk about, you try to raise the money for the depressed people, I think that become a bit challenging because uh, you think that, well, there's something wrong. I mean, they're, they're nuts, you know, I mean, so, so, so there are a lot of 
lack of awareness of the problem. And then this lack of awareness will lead to some sort of stigma about the depression. Even if they themselves, I think they are having the problem, sometimes they do not have confidence that the other people can help them. So actually, the ability or the motivation, I think, to sit and help is very low. Because of this, when you have the net of the knowledge, you have the stigma, then there is also some prejudice, I think, in the community. I think uh, we have been talking to the medical health people of the people who are treating the self-harm people. They actually, I mean, there's less empathy. You know? I mean, oh, these people, they deliberately self-harm themselves. I mean, they're wasting the medical health resources. So I think this sort of thing, it is really like a chain, you know, as from the net of the knowledge, from the stigma, from the prejudice, and then it leads to discrimination. So I think one thing that is very important when we do the suicide prevention in Asia is not only we need to provide more resources, which is very, very important. I mean, but at the same time, I think change the mindset, I think change of the culture or how they perceive the, the mental health and then try to let them know that since seeking help, it is not a sign of weakness, it is just a sign of strength because you realize that you have problems and then you're willing to come and then to seeking help. So I think if we can do this, and then I think we will have a better chance that we can make a difference. Absolutely. And I think Asia is not alone in um, trying to solve the problems about stigma and raising awareness and reduction of prejudice. What are you seeing happening? What practical things are in place to help with both that side of things and also training for people to deal with it better in the workplace and the mental health services? Well, I think it is important, I think, for everybody to realize that have a better mental health in the community. It is good for everyone. You know? I mean, as you might know, in Hong Kong or in Asia, they have a very hardworking attitude. You know? They work long hours, and which is totally not very good for their mental health. And some of the employers also are not very sympathetic. I mean, they really to work you very hard. I mean, they get the last blood from you. And, and so that is not actually very cost-effective. I mean, we have been saying that thing because of the mental health problem leads to the absenteeism and also the presenteeism too. I mean, the presenteeism, now we know absenteeism is what? I mean, it's because those people who are not well, they cannot go to work. But the presenteeism is even worse. It is actually they go to work, but their mental wellness is not that fit. It actually, they're wasting their time there. So, so it actually, it is very demoralizing and it actually it is bad to the employer and then to the employee as well. So I think it is important, I think, for the employer to to remember to create a mental health friendly working environment. And then there are such a people I think can come in, they can feel they're being treasured, they're being valued, and then their voice are being heard. And then at the end, I think the productivity I think it will go up. No, I think that is very important. I think when we talk about the workplace mental wellness promotion. That's a really good point in terms of selling it into workplaces in an environment where that hardworking culture is so strong. Actually, a nice way of selling that to employers is the productivity angle that actually it makes sense from a dollars and cents point of view as well as people's personal sense of empathy and responsibility towards their employees. Well, I think we have done a study on this called a social return on investment. 
SROI calculation. Now, when you put one dollar sign, I think in promoting the mental wellness of your worker, it actually there's a lot of study to suggest that I think it leads to more than ten dollars. I think of the output. So this is a good business. No, I think when you talk about business, because all the employer they are worried about why should I spend the money on this? No, I mean it doesn't lead to the productivities. And then when I give you good working environment, it needs some investment from his side. But we can justify that. Hey, it actually when you are having this, it will lead to I think better productivity, and I think that will be good. And what about training of people working in the health services? Have you seen an increase in suicide first aid training for people in those roles? Yes, I think in Hong Kong we have seen there's an increased awareness. I think in the workplace, so we like to provide more training to the healthcare and also the teaching professionals. Because I think there's a lot of teachers. I think they are concerning about not because I do not want to care for my school children, but they one they're very busy and two they do not have the sufficient training. So I think what happened in Hong Kong, our center has been responsible to providing the training for this our mental wellness promotion skill among the school teachers. But it is also very important. I think all this training or all this program, it is just an entry, a key to change the overall well-being of the mental wellness of the school. But the program itself, it doesn't change. But it is it is the means. I mean, to get into the school, and hopefully through this program, we can change the mindset of the people, <laughs> raising the awareness, change the mindset, let them to buy in, and then subsequently lead to the behavioral changes. So. Don't put all the faith in the program. You do not have that environment. If you do not have the very supporting personnel, if you do not have the supporting principles, it is not going to work. By same token, in the healthcare sector, we have a similar situation. We moving from a what we call medical care model to a community-based model. Let the community itself, I think, to be a safety net. I think to helping these people who are in need because those people who are depressed. Are not well. They have a very low motivation to seeking help. They have a very low initiative, right? So what we need to do is, is going back to the community, build up the gatekeeper training there, and hopefully by then you have much more chance to be able to engage these people. So then you have less people actually needing the hospital services as such, because hopefully it's more community driven at that earlier stage. Yes, I think the whole idea of the public health approach. Is this a move away from a clinical and medical model to a community-based model, and also move away from an illness model, illness prevention to the wellness promotion? I mean, it's a lot of time we spend a lot of money. I think on this healthcare system. Hopefully, we have a good screening system. We can have early intervention and this. Now, these are important, but that only for a very small group of people. Who are on the tertiary level, they need some special skill. But at the end of the day, is the community at large. If we can help them to improve their mental wellness, it actually the impact on the overall well-being will be much bigger than just concentrated on a very small group of people who have a high risk. I like what you had to say too that a course is just the key. So you see people doing one mental health first aid course or a suicide first aid course, and then that's it for the year. But it's actually about changing the entire environment, as you say, and that's the start 
of your yeah. journey in change, shifting those mindsets, not the one course and it's all fixed now. Yeah, I mean, as we learn in Hong Kong, we have been doing this school program for so many years. All the school teachers saying that we fed up with the program. We have too many programs. You just overwhelm us. You just make us even busier. No, it actually is bad to their mental health. So what they're saying that, hey, we need a program to come in to kickstart the thing and such that they can really do the capacity building. It's not after the program finished and everything will go back to the square one. So we like to, through the program, doing the capacity building, build them up and let them to fully embrace this mental wellness in the whole curriculum. So it is not only just for some particular student who have special trouble. What we like to do is promote this mental wellness across the whole school, whether the school curriculum, whether the activities, whether everything. We put the mental wellness as the top priority. I think that is something that we should be doing. Absolutely. It should be every focus of every aspect, you know. How can we achieve in any other area of our academia or sporting lives without the mental wellness? And I love the strengths focus rather than, you know, you need to support the unwell, but actually focusing on the strengths of mental wellness is such a positive way to approach it. And what about, Paul, I know that you've done a lot of work with the media and researching public health messaging around this. Have you seen a shift in how the community is actually receiving those messages in the media about suicide and its prevention or mental wellness? Yes, I think we have seen some encouraging changes in Hong Kong. I mean, I heard about the suicide prevention researcher. They say that they hate the media professional. I mean, they are just a group of people just cannot talk to you. But what happened, I think we have invest some time to understand the working behavior of the journalists or the media professional. Once you start to understand their constraint, and then you also give them the opportunity that, hey, you can be one of our partners or co-worker for suicide prevention. Because when the media professional, they have a motto for their work, is do no harm, right? It's exactly what we like to do. If you do not a very good reporting of the suicide news, it actually does some harm, no? and you do some harm. And actually, you mean to protect those people, but the way how you do it, actually, it might hurting the people. So what we have done, we have been collecting some data. I think we have been shown that when you have a very excessive or sensational reporting of the suicide news, and then we demonstrate that there is an excessive suicide immediately after that, right? Because when they see the figures, then they also feel that, huh, well, am I really contributing to this? So then we bring in the professional to explain to them, bring the psychiatrists, clinical psychologists, and then such that we can form a team, I mean, to work together. Well, what is admissible and what is not admissible, right? But for us, we give them the Ten Commandments. No, thou shalt not do this and thou shalt not do this. And what happened? They couldn't do anything. I follow all the Ten Commandments. There's no news. As a matter of fact, it's not that bad to have no news. <laughs> but you, we also can think in their schools, they need to have some news. So what we, we have done, we have created a booklet called the Ten or the Recommendation of the Media Reporting. Now, we do not say it is guidelines. When it's a guidelines, it means you teach them how to do the job. 
But when we say recommendation, it is a very cordial way to share our knowledge. And we also very much learn from them as well. So after that, now we have built up a very good working relationship. Now, if there is any suicide news now, they call us up and ask us for wheels and what do you think about this and how should we explain, I think, to the public on this. So I think that is very good. And now we also move from the printed media to the social media. So now, actually, I'm not sure, especially the young people, they read any newspaper now. <laughs> so, so, so they all go to the, the internet to get the information. But actually, when the information of the internet comes from, sometimes it's from the printed media too. So they are not too mutually exclusive. They are actually dependent. So whenever we can get some good thing printed in the printed media, they will be shared in the internet too. And also we talk to the KOL, the key opinion leader. I think we like to engage them as a way to be the mental health ambassador too. So actually when they say something, it's much more effective than what Pojip have said something. You know? So the KOL has a lot of followers, right? For me, I only have three, you know, I mean myself, you know, but, but they, they have 10,000 or 50,000. I mean, so we need to make use, they are, our partners, I mean, to promote this mental health. Fantastic. And I know it can be difficult at times to work in suicide prevention because, you know, it's high numbers. And as you said, really concerning rates of young people taking their own lives. But what I ask everyone on this podcast is what gives you hope when you look at suicide and its prevention? I mean, yes, we have been working in this research for the past nearly 20 years and then the people, they say, hey, Paul, how come you can put up with all this uh, very sad thing? Yeah, indeed. I mean, it is very sad. I mean, when we see the young people, I mean, they jump off from the building. When we see the family suicide, the, the suicide pact, it is very sad. But what we see is every time when we see this, we try to learn something from it. We try to able to turn the table around. And then they're trying to prevent, I think, the future strategy to come. So if we continue to do this, then we somehow we are being energized <laughs> say that, hey, we are doing some good. We are hoping to make the differences. So, so far, I think we are very fortunate, I think, to get the endorsement from the government, from a lot of people. Then we work together. So our suicide rate in Hong Kong, it has been gone up from 12 per 100,000 to 18 per 100,000 in 2003. But now it has come down to about 12 per 100,000 now. So the important thing, just to let the people know that, hey, suicide is preventable, right? Yes, there are some hardcore suicide, which is very difficult, right? But the substantial proportion of it, they are preventable. And then we all can part of this effort. So I think the important thing to induce the hope to the community that suicide is not the only way to solve the problem. (laughs) Actually, when you suicide, there are many people who are suffering from this. We do not blame you. We know that you have a lot of problems, but it is okay to seeking help. I think, as I said before, seeking help is not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of strength. And then we always say it's okay not to be okay. No, so, so we come forward and hopefully, I think we, we are seeing the changes now. But some of the bigger problems, I mean, uh, the young people are facing now, like the breakdown of the family support. I mean, we have more divorced families, single parent family. We talk about lack of the hope among the young people. We talk about the social media, the internet addiction, and all those things. They make our suicide prevention more challenging, right? 
I won't say more difficult, but I just more challenging. But I do believe that with the goodwill, with the effort of the stakeholder in the community, and then we can see the change. We have seen the change, and then we are going to make more changes. That is so motivating, Paul. I, I love that because we are all in it together. And I really like that, you know, we can spend so much time talking about mental health services and hospitals and things like that. But I really appreciate how you focus on the community side of things and that we all have a role to play and that it's okay if we're not okay and we can help each other. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience today about the work that you're doing in Hong Kong? Well, I, I always say that I'm amazed by the enthusiastic effort for suicide prevention from many parts of the world. I mean, from Australia, living works. I mean, you have been doing wonderful things. I think we have started some new initiative, how to promotion this emotional online support system for the young people who do not want to call now, who just spend on the internet, and then we try to engage them in the internet. So one thing I just hope that to share with the readers that suicide prevention is possible. It's possible. And then we have been showing it, it works. And then one is too many, and then zero uh, uh, suicide is not impossible. But at least we also try to move towards the zero suicide. And uh, I hope every suicide will help us to treasure our life a bit more. And then hopefully, we really can reduce the suicide as many as possible and then such that we all can have a meaningful life and then be a blessing to those people who are in need. That's a fantastic way to round out our interview. Thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciate the lessons that you've shared with us from Hong Kong and look forward to coming across you around the world in future years as we work on this together. Yeah, I think the, during the COVID-19, it always have a challenging time to everyone. I think uh, the COVID-19, we see the quarantine measure uh, lead to the social isolation, anxiety, and stress. But at the same time, I mean, the COVID-19 also remind us that I think we all can help one another. I think that is very important. And then that is what we call suicide is everyone's business. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Paul. It's been lovely to talk to you. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love you to subscribe on the usual channels, write a five-star review, and most importantly, share it with your family, friends and colleagues on social media, tagging Living Works. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. A reminder that if this episode has brought up tough emotions for you, talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you're feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you.